Well, good morning, Grace. It is a privilege to be with you again this morning. As Marla has said, we are a foster and adoptive family from, uh, we adopted our youngest daughter in 2010, and uh, we are in process more as my oldest daughter is in process of adopting some kids, but I'll, I'll tell you about that a little bit later. This is Orphan Sunday, and so we are taking a break, as, as has been said, to remember and to look at how God cares for the outcast. He cares for the orphan. In Psalm 68, it says, He is the father of the fatherless, and he sets the lonely in families. If you have not been around Grace for very long or do not know so because you haven't been involved in the ministry, Project Hope, defending the fatherless, is part of the DNA and fiber of this church. Um, it is a huge part of why we are here and, in fact, why my daughter is even daring as a single young woman to adopt two kids is because of the love and support and the caring of this church. But one of the things I think that when we do a Sunday like this where we focus on a specific area or a specific ministry, I think sometimes that can make people nervous. Um, they can kind of think, well, maybe it's because they say we need more foster and adoptive parents, so they're doing this, and it's kind of a recruitment tactic. Or you feel guilty because, well, I can't foster and adopt right now, so does that mean I'm a lesser person or something like that? And I'd like to put you at ease because let me just state straight out. Um, personally, I do not believe God calls everyone to be foster and adoptive parents. Okay? If you look at Scripture, God calls people to different tasks. He calls people to different callings. And he'll call some people to missions and some people to foster and adopt and some people to this. You look at Ephesians 4 and see how the gifts are passed out. That's not how the church works. But don't think that lets you off the hook because he might be calling you, one, and two, even if he does not call you to that specific ministry, it is clear in Scripture that we are to care for the orphan. It is part of the heart of God that he cares for the fatherless, and we are to do that. So how do we do that? If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And we're going to look at three things briefly in that text we're going to look at what we are called to do, how we accomplish that calling, and what is our motivation or our empowerment that enables us to accomplish that calling. Now let me just give one other disclaimer. Um, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is not a passage that specifically has anything to do with foster and adopting. I could take this text and I could apply it to missions. I could apply it to the food bank ministry and caring for the poor. I could apply it to our marriages, to our family life and how we live in our families. I could apply it to your workplace and how you work and carry out your career and your job. But because this is Defending the Fatherless Sunday, we're gonna apply this text to foster and adoptive, to orphan care, to defending the fatherless. That's how we'll apply it this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning, that you again would remind us of your heart for the outcast, of how you have come and reached out to us and pulled us into your family. And you have given us an identity in you. And I pray that we would see your heart again and that we would understand some way this morning and some aspect that we would be able to participate in defending the fatherless today. In your name we pray, amen. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, in the NIV it reads, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is it we're called to do? What is our calling? We are called to imitate God, to be imitators of God. Now you think about that. What is it we imitate? We imitate what we value. We imitate what we want to be like, somebody we look up to, somebody we respect. Kids 
They learn a lot through imitation. And they imitate their parents. And sometimes that brings us great joy. And other times that horrifies us, depending on which quality they imitate of us, right? We see kids imitating their favorite sports player. They want to swing the bat like a certain major league player or dribble the ball or shoot like a certain NBA star. This time of year, you even see it in the college ranks where some of the elite college players, specifically running backs, not to pick on them, but if they make a great play and they score a touchdown in the end zone before they start their little celebration, they strike a pose. Anybody know what it is? Heisman Trophy, right? They want to see, they want you to see. See the resemblance between these two things? See how I resemble what the Heisman Trophy stands for? It's something of value to them. That's what they want to imitate. But we're not just called to imitate anybody. We're called to imitate God. That should blow our minds a little bit. How am I a finite, physical, fallen, sinful, yet redeemed human being supposed to imitate a holy, perfect, infinite spirit, God, and put in all the attributes of God you want after that? How am I supposed to do that? Well, the text tells us how we accomplish that. It goes on and it says, live a life of love. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. So we accomplish this by living a life of love just as Christ loved us. Well, if we're going to live just as Christ loved us, then we better know how Christ loved us. You ever thought about that? Now, um, if you go out and ask somebody what love is, you'll probably get a different answer for every person you ask of what they think love is. When I was growing up, I was a teenager in the early, uh, early 70s. I was in junior high. And, um, you know, you just, Vietnam was just ending. You had the hippies, the sexual revolution, free love. Oh, they would know what love is, right? Here was the definition I remember being told back then of what love is. Love is a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling you feel you've never felt before. Okay? I'll let you break that statement down later. It does actually make some logical sense, but it is a vacuous statement. It means absolutely nothing. And in fact, I would say to you, as I have gotten older and in these past several years, I have experienced a lot of feelings that I know I have not felt before, and I can guarantee you, they were not love. <laughs> right? How does the Bible spell love? Ever thought about that? G-A-V-E. He loved us and gave himself for us. It's an action word. It's not a feeling word. It's an action word. In fact, here's a bunch of scripture. If you look at a bunch of these passages, what you are going to see in these passages is the concept of love gave. Love gave. I'll start at the second one. John 15, 13. No greater love does a man have than he lay down his life. Right? First Timothy is the passage that was preached on when I came to faith in Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, that man Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for mankind. Most of you know Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Love and gave. And once we understand that, then we go, well, what did he give? He gave us all. He gave everything. If you look at the text, it goes on and says, who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is alluding back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the unblemished lamb is sacrificed as an atoning offering. The word sacrifice implies slain. It implies death. He gave him himself completely. And, and again, in the Old Testament, 
when it talks about in Leviticus and Exodus about uh, the ram being burnt on the, off, on the altar as an offering to God, God said it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, the text says. It was a sweet-smelling aroma. So he gave his all, first of all. And secondly, when he gave, it wasn't just kind of will-nil, giving away, whatever, giving. It was specific and with intent. He gave to meet our need. We had a need. I was lost. I needed to be found. I needed a ransom. I needed to be redeemed. He didn't give me something I didn't need. He gave me what I needed. He gave so that we could have. And in fact, I think you could summarize John 3.16 like this. For God so loved that he gave that we might have. He gave completely, and he gave so that we might have. Well, if that's, our, if that's uh, how we accomplish the calling, do I then need to figure out a way that I am to muster up the ability to love in situations where it is difficult to love? Do I just have to kind of conjure that up within myself? How in the world am I empowered? What motivates me to do this? And it's the second phrase of the passage. He says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. You are dearly loved. This past summer when we were preaching through the Habits of Grace series, Eric Twisselman spoke on prayer. And if you remember, he said, remember that all prayer is secondary speech because God spoke first. Well, folks, all love is secondary love because as 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. I think Paul understands that that wrestling with and trying to get a hold of how much God loves us, how dearly loved we are. I think he understood that because if you flip back a few pages to Ephesians 3 and you look at the prayer that Paul prays for the church and I think it's around verse 17 or 18. First of all, he prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, think about that statement sometime, God's glorious riches, But he goes on, he says, I pray that you would have strength together with all the saints, that you would have power, excuse me, power together with all the saints. Power to do what? We we think of how we use power. Power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God. That you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. We bask in the love of God. It is his love that flows through us and out of us. It is not something that we have to conjure up. It is God using, and we are a conduit for his love. But remember this, the text says we're not just dearly loved. We're dearly loved children. We have an identity. We are sons of the king. We call him Abba, Father. We have relationship with him. We have identity. If you go through the first two chapters of Ephesians, and let me point out just here a list of things that we have been given, what we are, and what we have access to that Paul tells us about just in the first two chapters of Ephesians. We are blessed. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are redeemed and forgiven. We have been lavished with God's grace, wisdom, and understanding. We have received the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. We are marked. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a guaranteed and rich inheritance. We have been given the ability to know him better. We have hope. We are called. We have been given his great power. We are Christ-filled. We are seated with Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. We are God's workmanship. We are created to do good works. We were dead. We are now alive. We were objects of wrath. We are now included in Christ. We were excluded, foreigners, aliens, without hope. Now we are citizens and members of God's family. Amen? We have an identity in Christ. That is what motivates us. God's love is what motivates us to fulfill the calling to be 
an imitator of Christ. So how do we apply this? You know what the biggest difference is between me being spiritually fatherless and needing to be adopted by God and a child who is earthly fatherless and needing to be adopted into a family? You know what the biggest difference is? It's not his fault. It is my fault. See, I shook my fist and we walked away from God. We said, see you, God. We can do it better our own way. And we turned our back and we walked away from God, ultimately. See, the child is an orphan because war, famine, disease, neglect, abuse. He has either, he, he has either um, had his parents be killed he has been abandoned by his parents, or he has been taken away from his parents. Those are basically the three ways that they become orphans. And because of that experience that they have to go with, most every child who is an orphan has experienced significant trauma. And that trauma can follow them for life. And so they have things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they have attachment disorders. They have abandonment issues. They have identity issues. They have trust issues. And if you think that taking a child who's gone through a traumatic event like that and placing them in a family, they're all better. It's not. Some of those kids will live with the reality of that for the rest of their life because of the trauma they have gone through. So how do we help them? Let me share some experiences as, just as an adoptive and foster family of things that have been done here at church for us that maybe will help you get a glimpse of some other ways that you can share and participate in defending the father, fatherless that is not necessarily foster and adopting, though that is a great way. First, let me say this, just remember this. Small things are big things. Small things are big things. See, because what we, what we often will do is say, okay, instead of being an imitator of, of God just as Christ, we say, well, I'm just, a, I'm just a Sunday school teacher. I'm just a nursery helper. I just hold babies. I, I just prayed for you. I'm just a grace group member. I'm just a friend of the family. I just, and it goes on and on. No. Small things are big things. So if you're over here at any time in the morning and you're working with our kids or you're down over in this building and you're working with our kids and you're a Sunday school worker, you're a helper, you're holding onto the kids and you are over there creating a safe, loving, protected environment for our kids and our little one comes running up to the top of the stairs and he runs down the hallway and round the corner and shakes the gate like, let me in. Okay? For kids who have experienced trauma, attachment disorder, abandonment issues, to have a place like that where they can go and feel safe and nurtured and protected and then you teach them about Jesus, you pray over them, that is huge. For that family to be able to come into this building and sit in this sanctuary and worship and be edified and be built up and know that their kids are being taken care of here and here because they've got a battle they've got to fight the next week. And when you do that, you're not just a Sunday school teacher. You're defending the fatherless. That is huge. Don't forget that. Maybe you're a small group leader for a junior high or a high school student, and you've got a kid in your group that's been adopted, and, well, shoot, they were adopted 10, 12 years ago. I mean, isn't that a common way of life for them now? Isn't that just routine now? Do you know that most kids who are adopted at some point in time in their life, often between junior high and college years, are going to deal with an identity crisis? Who am I? Who is my family? Questions are going to start coming up. Family of origin. What's going on? What happened? Why didn't they? What happened to me? And if you as a small group leader can help point them and show them their, their identity in Christ 
and show them how that has been modeled in their family and how they have identity in their family and love on them and carry them and work with them through that phase. That is huge. You are defending the fatherless when you do that. If you're a friend of the family, say, well, I'm just a friend of the family. We have a couple families that are just very special to us. If you're a grace group member, you have somebody in your grace group. If you can love on these kids, if you can love on the mom and dads, if you can get to know them to the point where you can babysit for them, where maybe you can even just come over to their house and play with the kids because I have phone calls to do and paperwork to do and I need to get this stuff done and I can't with the kids. You know, that's huge. As I said, we've got a couple families here that have just, we've known them long before we started fostering and adopting and they've just really come around and supported us. They're families that when, when we had certain stipulations put on us and, and all of a sudden we're in a bind and we have to do something and somebody's got to watch one or more of the kids, we can call them up and they're either at our house or we can drop at their house and in any moment we can take them there. And our kids love being around them. And it's not just the moms and the dads, it's the kids. And so our kids have big brothers and aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpas or however they want to call them but people that are invested in their life, that they love being with them. And you may say, well, I'm just a friend of the family. No, you're not. You're defending the fatherless when you do that. That is huge. We can't do it without people who support us like that. But one thing I need to caution you about, if you get to know and get involved with families like that, one of these things you might look at is someday and going, gee, I could do that. God might move in your heart and change your heart. You see, that was our experience seven years ago. When Renee and I got married, we were planning on adopting our family. Renee's a carrier of hemophilia. Females have it, excuse me, females carry it, males have it. Her, her grandfather had it very badly. And that was a concern of ours, but Renee is such a bad carrier that her clotting factor is so low, they thought she'd bleed to death in childbirth. And so, you know, you better not have kids. That's not going to be safe. Well, over the years between when we were dating and, and obviously when we had our first child, they learned a lot about that and found out, okay, it can be done. And so we ended up having two kids of our own. And then, you know, you kind of get out of the diapers and you get out of the strollers and life goes on and it's comfortable and yeah, we talked about fostering and adopting, but uh, she would have done it. Yeah, that's kind of messy. Let's just keep going. And life just kept going. And then here we are on vacation in uh, d uh, September of 2009, and we're walking along the beach, and I had an experience that I can only describe to you by looking at Galatians 1. It's where Paul is talking to the Galatians, and I think it's verse 13, and he says, you know, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. My life course was set. I knew where I was going. I was excelling at it. I had my career. Things were going well. We were moving on. Let's not deal with this. And then the next three words, Paul describes his Damascus Road experience. But when God. And on September 26, 2009, I had a but when God experience. And the course of our life changed. As we sat in a condo and Renee is thinking, we can do this. And I hear her echo what I'm thinking, we can do this. And so I responded, then let's do it. I wish I had a camera for my daughter because her jaw probably hit the table and her eyeballs were about this big around. Because dad said, let's do it. Really? You know, Renee would have done it a long time ago. Dad? She didn't even want to look at me. She said, I didn't even want to look at you. I was afraid that I was hearing things or something, but... And we signed up. And about eight months later, we met our youngest daughter in April. She came to us in May. And in December of that year of 2010, she, her adoption was finalized a week before her 16th birthday. And then we entered two of the most painful years of our life. 
See, I don't want you to think that stepping into the foster, adoptive, or stepping into this world is just wonderful and rosy and everything's great and neat. It's not. Listen to this quote. My friends, adoption is redemption. It's costly, exhausting, expensive, and outrageous. Buying back lives costs so much. When God set out to redeem us, it killed him. Buying back lives is expensive, and it was a painful two years. She ended up leaving our home, and for a year and a half, we had a very strained relationship. We didn't see her much. During that time, because of those two years, we had learned a lot about fostering and adopting. Excuse me, we'd learned a lot about attachment disorder. And uh, so we decided, well, let's go back and recertify. Because attachment disorder, they have found, is something that sets in the babies in the first three to four months of their life if they are not nurtured, loved, cared for, held. Something happens in their brain, and it rewires them, and it will follow them for their life. We're thankful that God has redeemed our time with our daughter. Over the last year and a half, she's gotten married and had a son, and our relationship has been healing. And we have seen redemption in it. In fact, to the point of last summer, we were getting ready to go on vacation. We were planning a trip together, and all of us were going to go. And I had to send out a planning text. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to send it to all three girls, their, their husbands, and just send out a whole text to everybody. Our daughter who came to us through adoption, our youngest daughter, she didn't respond to the text. She didn't say anything about the content of the text. But I get something back on my phone, and it says, Pamela has renamed the group. Doctorman Family. If we hadn't walked through six years of pain, that little thing, you say, oh, that's, what's that? That's nothing. No, it's huge. You have no idea how big that is. So in backing up in 2013, we decided to go ahead and recertify, and Kirsty came to us and said, well, you know what, I'm done with college, and I'm still living at home, so if you'll let me still live at home, how about if I certify as the mom, and you guys play grandma and grandpa? And we'll do this as a family ministry. And I thought, cool, you can get up in the night. We don't have to get up in the night. This is, this is great. Of course, my wife's sitting over there going, when in the world did you ever get up at night? <laughs> I don't think I still have. No. And so Kirsty certified. And on October 3rd, 2010, she gets the phone call. Your certification has been approved. And we have a two-month-old little boy we want to bring you tonight if you're available and want to take him. And so little man came into our life. And a month later, the social worker came to us and said, you know, it looks like this case is going to, uh, going to adoption. You guys aren't certified for adoption, but do you want to consider adopting him? I said, wow. Bunch of questions. Single, you know, young woman, is that the best? A lot of questions came up. We started processing those questions that morning briefly, and then I had to go to work, so I left. Kirsty said to me last week, said, Dad, do you remember what you said to me when you walked out the door? I said, no, I don't. But when God, and a course correction happened in her life. And, and her final analysis was this. Look, I may not be able to give this little guy the world, I may not be able to give him all the treasures of this world, but what I can do is introduce him to Jesus. And he does need Jesus. So yes, I will adopt him. And so she's certified to be an adoptive mom. And hopefully, by January, we'll have our final court date to where he will be finalized and be adopted. And we say, thank you, Lord, for that. And then in the next year, after he came, a year later, almost to the day, she had received a couple of calls to take other kids, and she had had some parameters that we, just wisely, you have to do. And they didn't fall within those parameters, but on October 25th, 2014, we get a call, and here's the context of the call. We have a safe surrender baby. So we have no name. We think he's about a week old. He is either Chinese or Downs, 
and he has an extra thumb on his right hand. He's got six fingers. Do you want to take him? And, uh, well, that's all they knew, so there's no questions to ask. They're not going to be able to tell you anything else. So she asked the only question she can ask. Well, how long do I have to give you an answer? 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes. So you look at the criteria. That's why you have criteria. that You can run these things through quickly. And uh, Renee was gone. We got her on the phone. We chatted about it real quick. So what can we do? So we said, okay, what we'll do? We'll commit to 30 days. We'll take him for 30 days because we've got a little man and we've got to make sure that we're doing okay by him. And we don't know, you know, downs, special needs. Th that has a lot of issues that can come with it. And so we took him for 30 days and that little rascal wormed his way into our heart. And uh, we couldn't let him go. Couldn't let him go because, again, what does he need? He needs Jesus. And actually, we may complete his adoption first. Hopefully, we're waiting for a court date again for both of them, but hopefully his will be in the next five, six weeks. And he, he will be adopted. And again, we had another but when God, because God, we never signed up for special needs. We didn't do that. But when God. On May 15th, we kind of thought that we had a full quiver. We were done. And uh, my daughter got married on May 14th. We were kind of reviewing the day on May 15th and kind of having a major letdown, as you know happens after a big day like that. Kind of going, oh, okay, we can breathe for a while. And my wife gets a phone call. And it's a member of a friend. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a long relationship chain. But it is related. And uh, I go, what's, what's that all about? He said, well, there's a drug baby that's been taken into the system and a family member has called, the daughter has called us to say, would your parents please take this child? What am I going to do? Live a life of love and say, no. God, we're done. We're full. We're tired. No. And so little miss came into our life. And uh, I told you when I spoke before, that uh, we, a month after she came, they said they were going to move her. And she was with us for two months. And she was with us for three months and four months. And a week before the fifth month, they moved her. And it was painful. And it was hard. And we might even go, God, why did you do this? We were prepared to take her. Why did you move her? We were even talking about this yesterday. I said, no, I, I, I think I have an idea why he moved her. Do you remember why we signed up? We signed up to hold babies because in the first three to four months of life is when attachment disorder happens. We said, we'll hold them, we'll love them, we'll nurture them, we'll pour everything we can into them. And that's what we did to her. And she knows how to attach. And if we can lay a foundation for her, she will never know who we were. She will never know what part we played in her life. But if we can lay a foundation for her where she can attach to her mom and trust and love adults, that's why she was in our home. That's why she was there. See, they deserved to be loved. Let me finish with one last thing. There's a myth that we often have. You will hear people say it all the time. I can't possibly love a child that's not my biological child. I, I just, I couldn't do that. I, I don't imagine that I could ever love another person's child more than I would love my own. Now, let me dispel that myth for you a little sarcastically, if I may. If you're married here today, is your spouse biological? Or are they from another family? Right? And I would hope, first of all, I'd hope they're from another family. <laughs> okay. Second of all, I would hope that your spouse is the human that is most dearly loved on this planet by you. They're not a member of your family. Don't ever tell me you can't love somebody that's not a part of your family. Be imitators of God, therefore.
as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen? We're going to show you a video now, and uh, let me also give you just a, a little disclaimer so that you'll know. Um, people will often ask me, why do you call them little man and littlest and little miss? And if you watch this sermon online, they've had specific instructions that those pictures that you saw will not be online because they are foster kids and we do have regulations on us on posting stuff online, which is why you don't see people posting pictures of their foster kids on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. It's for their safety and for their protection, which is why I call them by their nicknames here, so you'll understand that. But you're gonna see another video now that will explain to you a little bit of the history of Project Hope and how it came about in this church and what it does and I'd like you to notice in several of the pictures, it's not just the mom and dad and the family. It's a bunch of other people standing around them. You see, we can defend the fatherless in a lot of ways, and a lot of times it's the support of other people that make it possible for us to do what we do. See what God has called you to do in helping be a part of defending the fatherless. Project Hope began with the desire to better know God's heart for the fatherless and to think about ways to enter into faithfully fulfilling His call to care for them. Its mission statement, Project Hope exists because of God's heart for orphans and His call to our church family to care for them in creative ways. God has clearly communicated throughout His Word both His special care for the fatherless and His special calling to His people to imitate Him in this care. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. Psalm 68, 5-6 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1, 27 Project Hope began as a mostly event-focused ministry, with a few special Sundays set aside to help our church begin to think about the needs of orphans around the world. As time went on, we began to meet regularly at Grace to think about and pray about God's heart for the fatherless and how we could faithfully enter in. People began to attend conferences, and the arms of our ministry began to grow more in number and diversity. In the midst of that time, the Project Hope Assistance Fund was developed, which helped to ease the financial burden of adoption on families. We began reading books together and learning about the unique needs of kids who come from difficult backgrounds. In the next couple of years, our hospitality and family care teams were birthed in an attempt to better care for families who were bringing these kids into their homes. And as time went on and families began to settle into a new normal, we discovered just how challenging and yet glorious this journey was. As one member of Project Hope said, this is crazy. We all keep saying how hard it is and people keep signing up for more. Since Project Hope began, we have seen 37 kids brought into forever homes in our church alone. Several families have said yes to temporary foster placements and have faithfully loved children as their own for a season. Others in our church have been trained to advocate for foster children in court to make sure their needs are seen and met in the complex and convoluted foster care system. Many have come alongside these individuals and families and made it possible to endure amidst all of the challenge, heartache, loss, and grief. And as we look to the future of what God has for us as a church, we continue to ask the same questions we did at the beginning. How can we know our own adoption better? That our Heavenly Father, a defender of the fatherless, adopted us in Christ so that we might find life in Him? And how does our adoption ground us in gratitude and enable us to live boldly for the sake of the most vulnerable in our world today? And how can we faithfully fulfill the call to imitate God as His dearly beloved children, uniquely as Grace E.V. Free? May God help us as we seek to find answers to these questions and pattern our lives accordingly. I'm going to have the Rigsby's come forward. Um, we just thought we would have one family share from their experience um, 
John and Carrie have been a part of Grace for, I don't know, longer than I can remember, <laughs> um, and a part of Project Hope. And so we just wanted to have them share from their experience and um, just the ways that God has worked in and through their lives. If you can get the mic off. Thanks. So first, do you want to just tell us about your family? Tell us who they are. That, who is that family? <laughs> um, this was an unexpected family photograph, so we don't look all in order and that five out of seven are smiling, so that's good. Um, there is uh, my husband, John, myself, our oldest, Andrew, our next, Adam, our next, Anna. On the bottom there is Angel, and being very serious in all of his photos is our youngest, Aaron. Yeah. And I guess, first of all, when you guys first got married, do you, did you expect this to be what your family looked like at this point in your lives? I thought two kids. That would stop at two. I thought three because um, I'm a third born and he needed me, so, you know, we need three. What would life be without that third baby? So we were done after three. We sold all of our baby stuff. We were done, done. We were comfortable. We were living life. <laughs> so how did, how did God bring two more? <laughs> God bring two more, two more plus. No. <laughs> Um, I attended a homeschool meeting um, with a group of moms in about October of 2009, and there was a founder of a foster family agency there, and she shared a statistic that I think um, changed our lives and moved us forward in this. I had always said that I would not be a foster mom for various reasons, and she shared that night. She said, our foster family agency over the last six months had a phone call for 650 babies and we were able to place and she paused and my mind thought what would be a really bad number like 200 that would be terrible right 650 200 she said um, we were able to place 40 and that that statistic really shook me to the core I don't remember what we talked about that night I just remember driving home thinking I think God's going to call me into foster care. Like, this is not okay. And I went home. I'm like, I'm going to talk to John. He's going to talk sense into me. We're going to pray for them and call it done. And, and then um, I shared that statistic and saw that look on his face that he can tell you how he changed that night. <laughs> yeah. Um, when Carrie said that she was interested in stepping into foster care, it was a big change because... Um, her dad was in foster care, and uh, she had always said that she couldn't do it. Um, she didn't want to be a part of it, um, and it would just be too hard for her. And to see that change in her was, uh, was the, the largest uh, reason why I thought that we should, should move forward. Um, that and the, the statistics, you know, hearing, uh, hearing the need about it. So, so that's what changed it for me, was seeing Carrie's heart change. He sort of thought, if not us, then who? That's what he remembered saying. I remember him saying, so, yeah. Um, do you want to share just a little bit about your process and things that came up in your life along the way? <laughs> sure. Um, so we moved forward gung-ho, perfect health. We looked much younger. We had lots of energy. We said, <laughs> we, um, we said yes to a temporary placement of a baby girl when we were first certified. And we got a call for Angel, um, and we got the privilege of bringing him home from the hospital, and it was exciting and hard, and we learned about court reports and things that had to be done and court dates. And when he was about seven to seven and a half months old, um, tomorrow actually is um, five days from my cancer diagnosis, so yay, but it's five years ago. But um, I sat in a doctor's office with my husband and my baby, and, and they told me that I had stage one breast cancer. And my first thought was, I'm going to lose this baby, and this is, not, this is not what I wanted, and this wasn't part of my plan. But God was so gracious to give me things in my life that were very overwhelming that caused me to um, trust and lean into him and persevere. It was a good thing. It, it made me dig my heels in and be like, I am going to do this because I, the strength 
of the Lord um, he's given me, and we're going to persevere. And John, uh, John walked our family uh, through all of this. Um, if you could show our next slide. Um, at the end of my treatment, uh, January 30th, 2013, the day before my last chemotherapy treatment, I went to a support group at our foster family agency, and I held this precious little baby um, in my arms, and uh, I was not thinking about um, taking another baby at this time because we had just walked a really hard year. And I just want to say that I couldn't have done it without my husband because um, when I met Aaron, I knew that I needed to bring him home. And I said to the other foster mom, he was three weeks old, I said, you know, um, I just need to finish chemotherapy tomorrow and then I'll be right over to get him. And so, um, but what just really blessed me is being married to a man like John. I think God called us um, wholeheartedly together in this. And I'm so thankful because he had spent a year handling everything for our family, caring for me physically, emotionally, caring for our children. And um, so what I do when I have a baby in my arms that I want, I send him a text message. And um, yeah, that's my husband, sure, no problem. So he can tell you a little bit about where he, how he got to be able to say, sure, no problem. I, I, yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't start off uh, being sure, no problem. Uh, in, uh, you know, a few years before, but, um, you know, foster care became our family's mission, and um, yeah, I knew that, uh, you know, when Carrie lets me know that, you know, she has a three-week-old three that she wants to bring home, I knew God would be able to, to handle it for us um, if everything fell into place, and it did, and we brought him home, and uh, initially I wouldn't, like I said, wouldn't have been, uh, wouldn't have been okay with it, but I knew that God yeah, could cover it. He made us like-minded and like-hearted in that way, and we're thankful for the support of Grace and for Project Hope, and I can look out and see so many of you have blessed our family, and just like Kip said, um, have been a big part in um, supporting our family and making it possible for us to just trust God in this way. It really is his heart. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say, I guess, to people who might be hearing you and thinking that's crazy or thinking that terrifies me that you did that and that God might be calling me to do that or anything like that? Do you have just words to share with people? Um, we have one last picture. Um, that young man on the left is our other Andrew. And um, me, I'm normally a crazy baby lover, but with God, you too can be a crazy teenager lover. <laughs> and uh, we met him at a children's museum, and he recognized Aaron and our family. And we started talking, and um, he said, I'm only asking because I'm in foster care and I'm about to age out of the system. And um, I found John, <laughs> and I said, I need to give this young man my phone number. I don't know why. Um, when I asked him his name, he said, my name is Andrew. And I said, of course your name is Andrew, because what else would your name be that, <laughs> that I needed to care for you? Um, but our eyes were open to the need. He has said to me with his own words um, that when you get to be 12 to 13 and you're in a group home, you know you're not going to get adopted. And that breaks my heart. Um, and uh, it's important to give kids a family between zero to 18 anywhere in there because at 18 we got to see the court just say you're 18 we'll drive you to a shelter good luck and um that's not what god wants that's not what we want um the problem of foster care is not going away if the church can step in and wrap around in any way i guess my whole point being is like you could be having a conversation with somebody and not necessarily take them into your home but be a meaningful person in their life. Um, there's an entire organization called CASA that will let you be a meaningful um, person in someone's life. And we just think that, um, I think the last question is, what would you say to someone who's scared out of their mind? We read that question and we just thought, um, you know, Nike said it best, just do it. <laughs> because um, scary is not always bad. You were scared, some of us, when we get on a roller coaster and we push through, but um, I remember one time when we'd heard that Angel's birth mom was expecting, and I just remember driving along thinking like, 
following Jesus is the bomb. Like, I don't know what's coming up next, but I could have another baby out there. I could not. How is he going to... How's he going to work this out in our life? And it's just, um, when you say yes to something hard, you can just be guaranteed that God's going to be right there with you, and he's going to carry you through, and it is scary and hard. And Yeah, I think if you're going to be reckless in one thing in life, it should be following Jesus, and for us, that's foster care and saying yes to kids. So Whatever your yeah. reckless looks like. Yeah. Reckless. Right, <laughs> right. Um, I just wanted to share really briefly, um, as the video said, Project Hope has undergone a lot of changes in the last few years, um, and this year I think is one of the biggest changes. We've actually stopped meeting monthly, um, just as the leadership team was looking at the needs of people who have been a part of Project Hope. And we realized the meetings weren't meeting the need of the people anymore, and so we've kind of expanded. We're, we're hoping in some ways that Project Hope would become a whole church ministry. Um, and so we have three different facets of, um, of Project Hope now. Um, one is equipping the church. Um, one is trying to help connect the church to different ways to care for the fatherless. And then the third is supporting families who are in process or who have brought kids into their family. Um, so in the insert in your bulletin has a lot of contact information for people who are in leadership and then also people who have agreed to meet with you if you want to ask more questions about foster care adoption and so many of the other ways that um, you can be involved in caring for the fatherless. So that's in your bulletin. And then at the end of the service, we're actually going to have Project Hope people standing around the room. If you want to talk to someone today, you can ask them questions, um, and they can help direct you in whatever way you can pray for them, pray with them, have them pray for you. Um, and then we also have a Project Hope table in the back. And then also on the insert, there's an event coming the first Sunday in December. And this is kind of a wide open. If you have questions or you want to learn more about the orphan crisis in the world, um, you can come to this and be equipped and, um, and hopefully learn something um, about that. So these are sort of ways, steps you can take um, to try, yeah, to, to ask the Lord and, and try to seek out what faithfulness looks like in your life.